Ladies and gentlemen, hello again, and welcome back to Don't Worry About the Government. My name is Chris Novembrino. On the show today, I want to talk a little bit about the fallout from this weekend's reaction to Roe versus Wade. I also want to talk about the bombshells that we heard in the January 6th committee today. Uh, it is now Wednesday, June 29th as I speak. This would have been the testimony from Tuesday, June 28th, the Hutchison testimony in particular. We're going to get into that. Uh, very, very interesting events there. What does it mean? How are the Democrats falling short? And I want to talk a little bit about theories of change here. And to help me out with that, I want to get into some of y'all's comments from the last show. A lot of great feedback from the last show. Uh, I talked a little bit about it at the end of the last show. Apparently, you guys are into the monologue shows. So there's going to be more monologue shows here. Of course, the video versions of these shows are always up in advance of the edited versions of them. You can find them over at patreon.com slash DWATG. A buck a show is all I ask for those. Um, but on today's show, uh, let's get right into y'all's comments. A couple of them coming from Patreon. One of them just coming directly into my email inbox, which is chrisnovembrino at gmail.com if you want to email me too. Uh, let me get into the first one here. Uh, to protect the names of the innocent, or maybe the slightly guilty, but uh, those that I can't prove guilty in a court of law, I am going to omit names here, and I'm just going to read, uh, if not your entire comment, uh, because I want to kind of keep them themed in here, uh, the, the operant part of each one here. Speaking on Roe versus Wade, the real progressive knew that this is what they've been planning since 1973. I understand your personal temptation to move because of all of the potential unintended consequences. But will there be mass migrations because of this? How will this affect national demographic trends moving forward? At what point do these rulings further delegitimize the court and put them even more at risk of physical violence? Are the conservative justices willing to become actual martyrs to their cause? If our country is willing to allow children to be massacred at schools and presidents can get assassinated, connect the dots from there. So, want to remind everyone that we have to be very careful about terms of services on all platforms, despite potential outcomes that we may or may not desire. And let me remind everyone, political violence is always bad, especially when it happens against bad people. We don't support that on this show here. No siree. Um, but let me start answering some of these other questions here. Um, regarding me moving to New Mexico, uh, will there be mass migrations because of my moving there? I don't think that you intended the question to be there. Um, I, but like... Perhaps, perhaps so. Um, part of the reason I want to get out to New Mexico now rather than later is in part because I actually do anticipate there are going to be migrations to these blue states as state-level Democratic parties realize that um, their bread and butter is going to be making sure that Democratic voters come out to preserve these oasis states. Um, I actually think for these blue states... 
life might improve because, for example, in blue states where marijuana has not been on the ballot yet, you have to imagine that uh, support will go down ballot. Um, abortion protection and marijuana legalization um, in, in various states will, will be a nice one-two punch. Um, so will it maybe result in mass migration? Perhaps. I don't feel obligated to stay and fight in Texas. I'm not sure if that's what the question was trying to get at, but it's like almost the vibe I sort of get in between. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Texas is really important uh, for, for the health of the country. Um, I Actually, I, I would argue now more than ever, right? Um, and I guess, I guess this will maybe kind of speak to another comment or, or and, and we'll get into that comment specifically, but like the general vibe of this crowd is, uh, well, it's time to not vote anymore. Um, the Democrats have failed us. Let us stop doing this. I want to just remind everyone of the state of play here, which is that Texas is potentially a battleground state. And the implications of that are really, really important right now. If Texas becomes a battleground state um, earnestly and Texas is well supported by the Democrats, it makes it more or less impossible for the Republicans to secure the White House. And... While I, uh, like many of you, have limited faith in the Democratic Party here in Texas to get their shit together and really make that super salient in, let's say, 2024, uh, that is perhaps possible by 2028. And having Texas as a thing that Republicans have to fight to defend and that Democrats can flip and ensure that at bare minimum, we have a veto pen in the White House, which will be more than enough because as much Republican control as they might get in both houses, they'll never have enough to pass an amendment. Um, so like a veto pen is going to be enough and they'll never be able to pass anything that's veto proof either. Flipping Texas right now is of supreme importance to women's liberty. And if you care about that, and it's not just about razzing political enemies on our side, I think we need to recognize the in incredible strategic importance that Texas presents to us. So I do consider on some level that like, yes, it sucks. And in some way, I guess I'm failing the country by leaving Texas to go to a blue state. My vote is losing some degree of weight here. Um, but I guess what I'd say is one thing. Um, I don't, the weight is going to increase um, in a serious way as Texas becomes more and more viable. Um, if that's happening by 2024, yeah, that's giving up some weight to my vote. Um, the flip of the script on that is a few things. One, the way that Texas state Republicans have gerrymandered the state legislature right now, in order for Democrats to get back the Texas state house, they need to get 56% of statewide vote. So the odds of Democrats making abortion legal again in Texas anytime in the next decade are not great. Having O'Rourke or a Democrat in office, let's assume it's like someone was better, like, like it was Castro. I mean, it's got to be O'Rourke in this in the world that we're currently living in, but like, let's assume it was even like Julian Castro or Joaquin Castro, right? Um, if it's the Castros, they're a strong veto pen. That's dope. Um, they can probably do some things and they can, you know, start really changing the dynamic uh, in the interplay between the governor's office and um, Congress. They also can affect many things on a statewide level. It's important, but it doesn't change the general contours of the land that marijuana is illegal, abortion is illegal. Um, and from my standpoint, 
um, you know, it, where I am at as a 36-year-old guy um, looking to start a family sometime soon here, it's really all that matters. Um, and, you know, later on, you bring up uh, getting massacred at school. Uh, having a Democrat in the uh, governor's office would potentially help on some level. At least maybe they wouldn't take the side of the Uvalde cops. But Democrats would still need to have control of the state legislature in order to do that. And it, it, as, of course, we all know, not all Democrats are created equal. And so, like, even if we get Democrats in the state legislature, they're probably going to be, you know, a purpley blue uh, in that nature, way better than the current red, you know, solid red, uh, blood red Republicans right now, blood especially. Uh, but it is also not sufficient for the changes that we want to see here in the immediate. Um, how will this affect national demographic trends moving forward? Um, I think you're going to see some people moving around. Uh, I think you will. I, I, one thing that I could see it affecting right, is these blue states will, yes, it might affect uh, population in red states and that sort of thing, but like blue states could pick up representatives. These less populous blue states, more people move to them, they pick up representatives. Um, other demographic trends that I could see potentially being affected by this, businesses. Um, we are already starting to see this, where businesses are having to do a bizarre do-si-do. -si -do. Um, they are still, of course, spending on Republican candidates, at least for now. We'll see how long that can last, tenably. Meanwhile, uh, with the other hand, one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing. With the other hand, they are financing people uh, being able to go to states to have abortions if need be. Uh, I think that this starts leading in, in organizations that are more women-led to an increased movement towards uh, remote work, um, especially like having a corporate office somewhere that's a red state where you can use it as a tax haven, but basically having a lot of your workforce uh, able to have their setup somewhere that's a blue state where they can actually live more in accordance with a life that they want to be in. Um, I, I, I could see this ending um, a, lot, a number of these red states, right, have been trying to attract businesses there. Um, businesses, I suspect, are going to have a very hard time attracting talent, especially among women, if the proposition is, please come and move to a red state. Uh, could you potentially attract a married woman who does, uh, you know, who has already had her kids and maybe is, you know, not having or not able and what for whatever reason to have children anymore maybe electively not electively you know you fill it out right um okay yeah sure but you are still ruling out all of your like 20 to 40 year old women um i think you might start seeing more women-led businesses um and i certainly think you will start seeing some more business-friendly blue states popping up and um if you start seeing a couple of those uh you could really see an exodus of businesses um the texas miracle might start to slow down uh it would be it would be another thing that i would suspect here um i demographically i think the the damage is done here you'll still see more businesses coming here um there will still be businesses trying to outsource to states that have lower state taxes right and more friendly business tax regimes but the remote work thing um I think, you know, many businesses wanted it to be over because of COVID. 
I, I think that conversation picks back up again um, because of this. Uh, I, I think that there are just many women who won't be very comfortable with this. And that is only going to be made worse. I mean, we're talking about this in the context of Roe versus Wade, right? Uh, but speaking about Texas, just today, my fine attorney general here, Ken Paxson, uh, who someone actually tried to say was like just like a fringe figure. He's the state attorney general of Texas, and he was trying to defend Donald Trump uh, on the January 6th stuff. He is not a fringe figure in the national politics. He might not be a household name, but like, trust me, among Republican households, they know who Ken Paxton is or Paxton is. Uh, Ken Paxton was saying that he would go and defend Lawrence v. Texas. This was the anti-sodomy law. Uh, if he had the opportunity to. Like, the Republicans are going to go after sodomy. This is now means that your gay and trans employees are not going to want to live in these states. Uh, yeah, I mean, let's... We saw in the ruling that came down on Friday, Obergefell get man mentioned. Um, if we talk about repealing gay marriages, now here's another tranche of workers, gay workers, um, uh, lesbian workers. I mean, you, you know what I'm saying. The LGBTQ class, uh, people who have same-sex marriages, they are all going to be relocating. Companies are going to need to find a way to accommodate this talent. Otherwise, they're going to be facing this massive brain drain. Um it's not employers aren't going to want this you're talking about losing talking about losing a lot of people and oh by the way among gen z the younger generation this is only more salient so like they're not gonna want to do this and then the other part of this is i mean again thinking about demographic trends here are people going to want to work alongside conservatives? And are conservatives really going to be comfortable working alongside liberals and businesses? Oh, they'll be more complaining about woke business culture and that sort of thing too now. Um, and I think it's just going to be even harder for us to work alongside our conservative colleagues. Um, we saw this with the pandemic. Uh, this is only going to be more true on, on the abortion thing. Um, it, 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 it's just it's going to be a real problem at what point does do these rulings delegitimize the court and put them even more at risk of physical violence um i think the answer here uh again terms of service people terms of service uh not that that, that comment is but like i'm saying that i have to modulate here right um so, like, let's answer that question with a look at a chart shall we um here is that chart. Uh, share screen. The chart for the people on the screen here goes back to a little before 1980. Around 1980, U.S. support of the Supreme Court approval rating was around 45%. It reaches 55% in the 1990s. Um, and so for many of us, uh, us end of history millennials, um, Look, if we're going to call them the 9-11 babies and talk about their myopia of not understanding the pre-terrorism world, I think we need to start joking lovingly about our own myopia, us end-of-history liberals, because things in the 1990s seemed like they were good and they were going to keep getting better. Obama. Um, and it didn't quite work out that way, did it, people? So what happens um, once we get out of the 1980s are actually when we're at the all-time high here? Um, and that's under the Ward Court, mind you. It is starting with Clarence Thomas, the Borg hearings, um, all of that sort of stuff. Once we start putting on conservative jurists, really interestingly, the trend line starts moving down. 
it settles back into the 1990s. People start thinking the Rehnquist court is okay. You know, not great. Okay, though. Okay. Um, and then we have the year 2000 decision. Um, the year 2000 decision is not great. It's not a great moment for the Supreme Court. Um, and, because what ends up happening after that is the Supreme Court never again is perceived at, with 50% approval rating. After that decision, that fateful decision on the year in the year 2000, late November of 2000, you start to see a clear, sharp downward trajectory, getting as low as uh, uh, 32% um, towards the end of the 20, 2000s, the aughts, right? Um, we get Citizens United, it dips even further. The Supreme Court upholds the affirmative care the Affirmative Care Act, the ACA, that gets them back up to 45%. And then, after the one-two punch of Amy Coney Barrett being put on the Supreme Court in a shoehorned way, and their decisions here, their approval rating is now down to 25%. Um, I, 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 I'm just bringing all this up, and I'm talking about these numbers here. Wanted to share these numbers because I think in order to really answer this question, we need to consider something. How much lower can these numbers go? Um, once you're, I, I, I think perhaps to the the commenter's question here. Once you're at these numbers, we're in a very dangerous zone, aren't we? Um, and, and like it gets me thinking about something else. Um, Jonah Goldberg this week. Um, it, you you guys recall I read Jonah Goldberg's book. I liked Jonah Goldberg's book. Um. I still like Jonah Goldberg's book, um, even though I do not always agree with Jonah Goldberg. Um, but I want to read Jonah Goldberg's comment here, and I want to like react to this and sort of flesh this out because I think this is why this opinion polling stuff matters. Um, another, a couple of you all have brought up uh, they don't care about opinion polling anymore. Um, there's actually someone who commented me on Twitter who I don't have copied on this, and I gave them a long response. So hopefully that's going to be sufficient here. Um, but they also talked about the opinion polling. I want to talk about, I get why it doesn't matter. I want to make to you all the case, the subtle case of why it does matter. And let's start with Goldberg's sort of argument. For three days now, I've heard nearly every big name mainstream media reporter and commenter make a lot of hay about polls saying two-thirds of voters don't want Roe overturned. There's an argument about that. But my real question is, do people really think that the court should follow polls? Okay, I get that. And that's actually kind of in the spirit of what, what some of y'all were saying to me. Like, I'm more like, Chris, do you really think this court is going to follow polls? No, no, no. I, I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. But like, also like, no, no, of course not. Of course not. But like, let's ro roll with me here for a second. Let's suppose that these judges, the Supreme Court judges, Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett, Sam Alito, uh, and of course, Brett, I like beer, Schlitz Malt Kavanaugh. Um, let's suppose these products of the Federalist Society now on the Supreme Court. And remember, it's basically from Alito onwards, including Roberts, all products of this Federalist Society, this organization designed to create a very specific interpretation of the Constitution that has a clear political bent to it. Let's suppose that 
the five members of the court, because like Thomas is the only one who's not a uh, Federalist Society product, but we're talking about Clarence Thomas here. But so there's like five, half the court is, over half the court. Let's suppose they're not obvious partisans and that the Federalist Society, remember that the Federalist Society are the same guys who tried to come to Kavanaugh's defense. Ed Whelan uh, from the Federalist Society went on Zillow and like was like, the rape couldn't have happened because I'm on Zillow right now and I'm looking at the floor plan. Like, let's suppose they're not obvious partisans. But instead, bear with me, try not to laugh as I say this phrase, that they are robots of the Constitution. And you get what I'm saying when I say robots of the Constitution. That, like, these are still humans, but, like, that we have some sort of way of educating these humans in such a fashion that these humans ultimately find a way to transcend, like, the news of the day, your angry friends, the Thanksgiving table, like, you know, the vibes of society and all that shit. And they, like understand the constitution it's what they speak from let's assume that that's what's going on with the supreme court right now i know you don't believe that that's what's going on right now i want you to just run with it supposing that that was what is going on right now the steady downward trajectory of the court's approval rating i construct this as a as a question on twitter goldberg apparently got annoyed when people put this as a question i have the time now to not put it as a question the steady downward trajectory of the court's approval rating says one of two things. Either that the problem with the court here is that the public does not think that the Constitution is working, that we are slaves to a document that gets ever older and ossified and we have arrived at a point where like the amendment process no longer is viable i mean remember when roe versus wade happened this is also around the same time that like there were constitutional amendments and stuff still on the table and still getting passed occasionally we're at a point where that can't happen um and, and it, there's no sign of abatement here maybe the public doesn't think the Constitution is working well as a governing document, especially not when it comes to matters of social affair, that they think that there are too many guns in society and they don't really care what the Constitution says about the right to bear arms or whatever, like amorphous construction or whatever amorphous meaning that holds. They want their kids to be safe at school and they want fewer guns out in the public. And like, they don't actually want like this armed society that's ready to root and toot and shoot in each other and root and toot and shoot the feds and all this stuff. Like, like they want like a peaceful kind of society. Uh, and, and, and you can, of course, extend this to any number of other things that they actually want government to do things at a federal level that they don't actually want the Chevron deference, for example, to go away. Um, not that that's necessarily top of mind for people. Or how about that? They don't really give a shit about what the First Amendment says with regards to money in politics, that they think that money in politics is actually bad and that Whatever the First Amendment says about free speech, it's either not applicable and thus these robots aren't working very well or like, yeah, Constitution be damned. I don't think that you should be able to do unlimited spending in politics. This actually sounds like a fairly viable interpretation of these public opinion polls. And Jonah Goldberg better hope that this is not correct. He better hope that 
the other interpretation that the problem here is that there are naked Republican partisans placed on the Supreme Court, one third of which were placed on there by a guy who did not win the popular vote and during the course of his presidency incited a domestic terror attack in which when it failed, he tried to strangle his bodyguard, hurled the porcelain plate at the wall covered with ketchup and fumed about how the mob didn't kill Mike Pence, even though he wanted to go and see it. And he tried to steer the motorcade in order to go over there and make sure it was more successful. At the end of the day, that president who nominated one third of the Supreme Court justices, uh, he, he was disappointed that it didn't go better. And, and by better, I mean he's disappointed that he, he didn't you know, see uh, more violence on that day and that it wasn't more successful. Let's turn now to what happened in the president's vehicle when the Secret Service told him he would not be going to the Capitol after his speech. First, here is the president's motorcade leaving the ellipse after his speech on January 6th. I turned to the White House, I walked upstairs towards the Chief of Staff's office, and I noticed Mr. Renato lingering outside of the office. And once we had made eye contact, he quickly waved me to go into his office, which was just across the hall from mine. When I went in, he shut the door, and I noticed Bobby Angle, who is the head of Mr. Trump's security detail, sitting in a chair, just looking somewhat discombobulated and a little lost. Um, and I, I looked at Tony, and he had said, did you effing hear what happened in the Beast? I said, no, Tony, I, I just got back. What happened? Tony proceeded to tell me that when the president got in the Beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel and Mr. When Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And despite this altercation, this physical altercation, uh, during the ride back to the White House, President Trump still demanded to go to the Capitol. Here's what Kaylee McEnany, the White House press secretary at the time, wrote in her personal notes and told the committee about President Trump's desire to go to the Capitol after returning to the White House. When you wrote POTUS wanted to walk to the Capitol, was that based solely on what the president said during his speech or anything that he or anybody else said afterwards? 
So to the best of my recollection, I believe when we got back to the White House, he said he wanted to physically walk with the marchers. And according to my notes, he then said uh, he'd be fine with just riding the beast. But to the best of my recollection, he wanted to be a part of the march in some fashion. Okay. And just for the record, the beast refers to the presidential limousine? Yes. President Trump did not go to the Capitol that day. We understand that he blamed Mark Meadows for that. After Mark had returned, I left the office and went down to the dining room, and I noticed that the door was propped open, and the valet was inside the dining room changing the tablecloth off of the dining room table. He motioned for me to come in, and then pointed towards the front of the room near the fireplace mantle and the TV, where I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall, and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall, um, which was causing them to have to clean up. So I, I grabbed a towel and started wiping the ketchup off of the wall to help the valet out. Um, and he said something to the effect of, he's really ticked off about this. I, I would stay clear of him for right now. He, he's really, really ticked off about this right now. And Ms. Hutchinson, was this the only instance that you are aware of where the president threw dishes? It's not. And are there other instances in the dining room that you recall where he expressed his anger? There were, there were several times throughout my tenure with the Chief of Staff that I was aware of him either throwing dishes or flipping the tablecloth um, to let all the contents of the table go onto the floor and likely break or go everywhere. We're looking at these public opinion polls. I mean, it's possible to look at the arrival of Amy Coney Barrett and Donald Trump being sort of unveiled to be a domestic terrorist and go, huh, maybe the reason that the public perceives the court as not being legitimate is that one-third of them were placed on the bench by a guy who the public does not perceive to be particularly legitimate. Uh, I, I have not seen more in-depth cross-referencing of, uh, of polls against, like, let's say, Trump's approval rating. Um, it, it, but, like, not like, do you like him, don't you like him? But, like, stuff like, you know, did Trump try to incite a riot on January 6th? Uh, you know, I would say domestic terror. I think maybe that question would be confusing for people, even though, uh, again, we'll get into why the, the case is so open and shut. This is obviously domestic terror, and we need to just refer to it as that. But, like, let's use riot. Riot, the middle ground position in this case. Um, I, I think you'd find that it's, it's incredibly high. And if you ask people, does it bother you that one-third of the Supreme Court was nominated by a guy who incited a riot, uh, by a president who incited a riot when the election outcome didn't go his way, I think you'd find that the polling on that's actually fairly high, even among independents. Uh, so I think that coupled with Roe's approval rating, yeah, it matters. Um, you know, it, it matters too, you know, in, in terms of the court's legitimacy. When the court chooses to rule against public opinion polling, 
whether rightly or wrongly, again, suppose these are robots of the Constitution, so everything they're ever deciding is is basically correct, and it's just like we, the kind of dumb humans who don't get that, like, no, like, dude, these robots are actually working correctly. Again, run with the robots thing. If the robots kept ruling in ways that the humans thought were wrong, eventually the humans would think the robots are faulty, right? So choose your own adventure here, Jonah. Uh, and I'm, you know, again, love the book. Still like the book. The, you know, the English garden versus the French garden thing. Great stuff. Also loved all the stuff about the kaiju monsters. But you got to choose your adventure here. It's either that the problem here is the naked Republican partisan jurists on the court and how they got there, not just Donald Trump, but the Federalist Society as well. The, the Federalist Society is a fundamentally broken institution as well. And, and that conservatives need to start also talking about i mean if they want to do their part here right like conservatives need to start talking about how the federal society is not legitimate and also democrats need to start talking about that as well in all of these confirmation hearings like the assault needs to actually be on the federalist society in addition to the conservative jurists that it produces or the problem is that the public doesn't like the Constitution as much as um, originalists and constitutionalists want it to be. Um, if these are, the purer these robots are, the more it gets to that second one, which I think, frankly, would make constitutional conservatives more uncomfortable. So it's one of these two things. Um, and again, it's even if you want to say it's the public just doesn't understand the constitution that's all well and good that would be the fallback position for my conservative friends at least my smarter ones it still gets back to the suppose they're perfect robots argument if they're perfect robots but they're operating in ways that the humans perceive to be wrong the humans aren't going to perceive those robots as being perfect they're going to perceive those robots as being flawed and thus they are flawed robots. Um, even if they are, quote unquote, not flawed, they are still flawed. Flaw is in the eye of the beholder. And reality, unfortunately, is ultimately a mass perception event. It's, you know, objective reality is done through multiple cameras, right? And if you have enough m cameras, that's the reality we live in. Um, in, in, we saw this, I, I would say, with the rise of Trump. Donald Trump never stopped being the goofy guy who was the host of The Apprentice. And so the news that we got in today's testimony, or yesterday's testimony now, uh, before the January 6th committee about the conduct of Donald Trump, is entirely consistent with the man that I always knew Donald Trump to be. And yet, reality being a mass perception event... When that man came down, that golden escalator, something happened for people. And this guy went from being a buffoon, a clownish guy, to being someone who now we have to write about with, like, Mr. Trump and, like, with, with like, this, like, aura of seriousness. And it's not just his partisans, right? Like, it's, like, the objective media and stuff. And you turn enough cameras, and that's reality. That's reality. I don't... I mean... And does that mean reality is objective reality? Yes and no, right? Yes and no. But 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 that's sort of the confusing, <laughs> amorphous and moving nature of objective reality. Are the conservative justices willing to become actual martyrs to their cause? Oh, I think Amy might be. 
I don't know about the others. Um, Gorsuch seems like a guy who just likes fishing and like doesn't like any of this stuff too, of course. But it seems to me that like push comes to shove, Gorsuch would like want his life. I don't know, uh, Thomas. Eh, he might be. I, like, like I think, I think he might actually secretly love that. Like he dies, a, he dies a hero. It's not like he's got that much time left. Like. He seems really obsessed with his legacy, especially by asking them to go big on Obergefell and other things. Um, and yeah, if the country's willing to allow children to get massacred at school and presidents to get assassinated, this is a really interesting comment at the end here. Not again, terms of service, um, not in in that direction, but like I think it speaks to the other side of all of this political apathy, right? Like we've gotten apathetic to a number of horrible things happening. And that would also include violence against judges and stuff. Uh, as you can see, Republicans refining their apathy towards school shootings and their apathy towards the plight of women who are now facing life altering situations. Uh, on the flip side of things, um, you could also see Democrats not being able to, uh, arrive at, uh, what I would say would be the appropriate level of sadness that we should have if something horrible were to befall a member of the Supreme Court. Like, the place we should be at in society is that when a Supreme Court justice dies, they're held in high enough estimation because of the performance during their career that we all go, well, I didn't agree with everything they did or said or whatever, but they definitely had some good moments. And, like, it's kind of a sad day. And, like, if someone, like, said, like, really horrible things, like, I don't know, I want piss on their grave or whatever, be like, whoa, dude, that's really fucked up. Like, again, I don't agree with everything, but, like, that's fucking weird. Like, this is where we should be at with Supreme Court justices. Again, these are imaginary ones. I'm talking about the society and the way things ought to be. Um, but where we are. It, it, it's not actually something I have to imagine, right? Where are we at? You just look at the way Republicans were tab dancing the day RBG died. And I think we all know how we're going to feel when Clarence Thomas dies. And, like, if something happened with Alito, do you really think that uh, Democrat lib-left Twitter would feel anything but uh, mirth for that? The, the, you know, and if Roberts resigned, like, what if, what if it could be because six, three, the other way, I know I'm like whispering of a dream or whatever. I'm not even saying it like that. I'm just saying we are very much at a point where it would be apathy. If misfortune befell our political enemies, that's not a good place to be. And while both sides are there, I think uh, lest I be accused of both sides do it. Like, like they're, both sides are now doing it. Which side did it first? Very clear which side did it first here. Uh, Jews will not replace us. Donald Trump was basically set the table for this. Uh, you set the table for January 6th going back to Charlottesville. So, like, no. Like, let, let us not forget who, who started this, who opened up this door. Um, but, yeah, I think it's fair to say that 
the Democratic electorate mindset at this point, even like your normie D voter friends who just don't really care about politics that much and would never have any interest in listening to Don't Worry About the Government, I think your normie friends wouldn't shed a tear if Clarence Thomas died. They go like, oh, who are the Democrats going to nominate? So, yeah, this apathy cuts in multiple, multiple directions. It's still bad, but uh, if we become apathetic to children getting massacred and there would be ambivalence to presidents um, facing a situation like the one you outlined in your letter here, uh, I mean, do you, if someone tried to do something to Joe Biden, do we really think Republicans would come to their senses and go, no, our electorate has gone too far? Do we think that Mitch McConnell would do anything but give like one speech on one day, just like Joe Biden did about abortion? No, it'd be exactly that. He'd be like, we need to be calm. We need to not do this. Violence is always bad in every situation. No, like we've, we've reached a point of apathy towards political violence. Um, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Um, so, yeah, a uh, lot, lot, lot in your letter there. A lot of questions. Um, I mean, good, good content. Good content. Let me get to another one here. With regards to your last monologue, yes, Biden is feckless. However, I think we need not a Bernie, Liz, or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We need something like a Beto or Candor. My preference would be the latter. Not sure why he flamed out, but charismatic and um, likable. All right, let me go real quickly here. I just want to make sure I know who Candor is. Um supposing you you mean the former and not the latter and we're talking about o'rourke um why did o'rourke flame flame out um i i think is a good question um let me i just want to make sure i know who candor is like like maybe maybe i'm duck duck go by the way people is like horrible okay so who do we think candor is uh politician jason candor jason candor okay Former Secretary of State of Missouri. Okay, so like, I mean, seems like an interesting guy with not enough name brand recognition. Wouldn't be a guy I'd want to lead, lead the party right now. Um, child's name is True Candor. Gotta tell you, people, I already don't like him based off of that. I, I think I think I got I think I'm against. I think I'm anti. I, you, he named his kid True Candor. Come on now, come on now, people. You can't have a pun kid. You can't have a pun, kid. Um, political positions on candor. He considers overturning Citizens United a political priority. I like that. And he supports the Every Children Succeed thing. I like that. <coughs> Vote against the goal or a bill that would have extended to renters the Castle Doctrine. Oof. I mean, I don't know that I like that. Um, look. Let's not have a debate about the Castle Doctrine at this exact moment. For it or against it, let us just consider this idea. It is fucked up that homeowners, i.e. people who have money, would have access to the Castle Doctrine, in addition to what they already have in terms of their right to their curtilage and stuff. Like, homeowners already experience greater rights than renters as it is. Um, to deny renters uh, the, the Castle Doctrine, actually, I, I mean, like, it, 
Senator Nove would extend the Castle Doctrine to renters. I, I, I mean, I'm, that's all I'm saying. Um, Kander is skeptical of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, um, he is also pro-Israel and has called on Congress to stop the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. Whew. Okay, so like, this is a big one, right? Like, let, let's talk about BDS, especially post Roe versus Wade, right? Um, the whole argument that people who are like, we need to stop boycott, divestment, and, and sanctions are, is, is that boycotts are not a legitimate exercise of free speech. Do we really believe that post Roe versus Wade now? No, we don't. No, we don't. Um, and, and that actually gets me into why, um, and like, like, I guess to O'Rourke, I, I mean, that, this, this is the other issue. It's about tone. Like, I, I think, um, especially since you guys know my political predilections, what true novism is, or at least many of you do understand, begin to understand the ways of true novism. No one can truly understand true novism. It's said that even I don't truly understand it. But but true, no, true novism exists and is there to be understood. Um, the reason I support specifically Liz and AOC or another rock-ribbed female candidate is because this primary challenge is not about Medicare for all. I know, I know. Um, Medicare for all is a thing that will, of course, attract the base. But like what the main event is, like if you thought about a primary challenge to Joe Biden as a wrestling card. I don't know why that analogy would come to mind. Let, let's suppose that it's a wrestling card or a wrestling promotion. The main event angle here in our little wrestling show of a primary here, Joe Biden versus somebody, is going to be about Roe versus Wade. And, and, and the angle um, in wrestling, this is the story for, I know a lot of you like fall wrestling and I'm like, really, Chris, you're going to explain to me wrestling angles like they're, like I'm five. Not everyone who listens to this show follows wrestling. They just have to endure it from me uh, on a regular basis because enough of you do. So like an angle is like a story. What is the slant? Like wh where, where are we kind of coming in on? Like, why are these two people fighting? The main angle here has to be Joe Biden is not up to the task of fighting on Roe versus Wade. Now, every wrestling show has additional matches in what is known as the undercard. Um, so there are other struggles that need to be fought out here. Student loans is an interesting one. Probably a little bit lower on the card here. Doesn't touch everyone. Um, a little bit further up on the card, guns. Absolutely, that's an important one. Joe Biden, but see, thinking with guns is like Biden's going to be able to say, I did a bipartisan bill, Jack, like I did something here. So you don't want to be fighting on guns, right? Like you don't want guns too high on it. You might even want to have guns kind of low and be like, gun, guns is fine and all. But the main event angle here is that you didn't do anything on abortion when it mattered. Um, and whenever people asked you to do anything, you turned into like a walking, talking impression of green eggs and ham. I will not go and get rid of Kavanaugh. No, I will not go and get rid of Clarence Thomas. I will not go and expand the court. I will not go and, you know, do another bipartisan commission. I will not go and support opposing the filibuster, or like repealing the filibuster, getting rid of the filibuster to pass some sort of national protection. I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not eat green eggs and ham. Um, that is the angle here in the main event. Um, underneath that, 
you know, marijuana legalization is another point where Joe Biden is unbelievably weak. Um, you, you could also then talk about how Joe Biden failed to deliver on, on COVID response, too. Um, these are all things that I think are pretty salient for the Democratic voter here. And so, like, this is about tone and the willingness to be aggressive. So, OK, like, I, I want to be clear, especially like to the respondent here, you, like we like hugged like I, I like I, I love I love this guy. Um, it, it has nothing to do with that. Um, but like uh, it. Yeah, it's cool that he has an F on the NRA, but like it, the way he has an F on the NRA is not great with the Castle Doctrine thing. Um, boycott like if you say that boycotting Israel is bad, you're basically saying that boycotting businesses that oppose gay marriage is not a legitimate activity either. You say that you're saying that boycotting businesses that oppose abortion and that are explicitly pro-life is not a legitimate uh, speech activity either. It's it's just simply not tenable, and it speaks to tone. So there are some things that um I think he is good on. Um, uh, there are other things that I, I think just falls well short of the issue here, which has less to do about policies. Like I, I, I would frankly, like the, the left sort of dream list here off the table right now, because what we're trying to do is set the table for when we can finally run the table. Um, that's what the Republicans did here. They set the table, they ran the table. They didn't try to run the table. They set things up so that they can run the table now. Uh, and it's gonna, things are gonna keep clinking along. It's gonna stink for a while here. Um, but AOC, in the interim, uh, it looks like she's gearing up for this fight. We need AOC challenging for the speakership. It's gonna be unbelievably important to have a forceful tone coming from the speaker's position. For a primary challenge, we need someone with a forceful tone. I do not believe that either Cantor, Josh Cantor, or Beto O'Rourke is capable of the forceful tone needed to criticize Joe Biden coming up short. Uh, we didn't even talk about Ukraine or like the economy, inflation, these other things. You're going to have to be willing to do blood and teeth, uh, to use a phrase from Warren here, uh, Elizabeth Warren. You're going to need to be willing to actually fight hard against Joe Biden. And when it comes to fighting against Joe Biden, look. Who has the longest track record of fighting against Joe Biden? It's Elizabeth Warren. You can go on to YouTube here and find her sparring with Joe Biden going back as as long as 20 years ago and Joe Biden being unbelievably patronizing to Elizabeth Warren. One of the weirdest, strangest things was the Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden are in cahoots sort of narrative that that spawned up and that these two people are like working in lockstep. It's so obvious she's been pushing against him and she has no problem doing it. There's no love lost between them. And she's a woman. And, and this main event has to be a woman who gets it versus a stodgy old man who doesn't. It's if anything, if you disregard the Bernie Sanders was sabotaged sort of narratives and you get into like, why did Bernie Sanders lose? Bernie Sanders lost, you know, for a few reasons in my estimation. Uh, we talked about them before, but like, you know, I'll, I'll just reiterate them real quickly. I think Bernie Sanders, to a large extent, sabotaged himself by hiring people who were 
less competent the second time around than the first time around. Um, even though he hired a couple of corrupt people, uh, like some like Manafort associates and stuff, uh, he was at least hiring people who like had worked in the business before. Um, and he had to kind of assemble things quickly. Second time around, he's hiring people like Brianna Joy Gray. Uh, Virgil Texas is in the orbit. Um, a lot of cringy people end up getting into the Sanders orbit. I, I think that that was a real problem. Um, and he wasn't a forceful critic of Joe Biden. I think the heart condition, uh, he was clearly better after he got the stint in place. But like when it mattered early on, I wasn't a forceful critic. But I also think where Sanders shot himself in the foot is while he was talking about the progressive checklist, where he was really what he was really not talking about. And actually, in cases he was against filibuster. Uh, he eventually came out in favor of being, you know, against the filibuster. But that was after on the debate stage saying clearly in, that he was in favor of supporting it because he thought it was like a great thing to defend rights and stuff and that we're going to need it and, and shit like that. Um, it, no, like that, that was clearly his position back then uh, on things like that. Um, I think, you know, that hurt him. And then it's just like this basic optics thing, right? I think in part, people don't hear this, part of what helped Sanders the first time around is that it was Sanders versus Hillary and that, like, people, to a certain extent, were more comfortable with Bernie because he was a man. Not not everyone, and certainly not everyone. Um, but there were, like, some people up to grab up for grabs just because, like, they didn't like Hillary because she was a woman. Like, let's be real about that. And we know that that came into play in the main election, too. It's actually kind of weird to think that I mean, it, it, it's reasonable to think it was less relevant to the Democratic Party, but it's actually kind of weird to think it wasn't relevant at all. Um, I think that cuts the other way, though, now this time, um, especially in terms of clear points of delineation. Um, instead of having two old men running against each other, I think that was a problem. It was, it's a problem that Sanders is as old as Joe Biden, because, like, you can't be like the easiest place to criticize President Methuselah is that, like, he's old and then he's old and out of touch. But, like, it's hard for a guy who's as old as President Methuselah, who is classmates with him, to really be able to go after him. And, like, yeah, it is a problem that Warren's young, or not that much younger than him, but she is younger than him. And she does come off as a lot more vital than him and a lot sharper than him on a regular basis. She does not seem like she's having senior moments on a regular basis. And, you know, like, let's keep it real. Uh, that I, I still think about that quote, uh, the president is a little bit sharper in the mornings, uh, or the vice president's a little bit sharper in the mornings from the, uh, the 2020 primaries uh, that one of his staff said. Uh, we've definitely seen that borne out during his presidency here. Um, so, yeah, no, it needs to be some. I, it could also be, like, I'll give you another example of someone. It could be. Um, I, I, I trust her, so I, I'll, I'll throw this name out there. Tina Smith. Uh, she is the former president of Planned Parenthood. I think she would be able to mount a serious challenge. You have to worry that she'd be a little bit moderate. Maybe, maybe honestly, uh, to this writer, uh, that would be the ideal candidate and maybe someone you're more looking for, right? Uh, someone like Tina Smith. But it's got to be a woman. It's got to be someone who's actually rock-ribbed on this Roe versus Wade stuff. Uh, no more of this safe, legal, and rare bullshit. Um, what did uh, the governor of New Mexico how would would she call it? Uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham. Um, Michelle, it was like safe, legal, and accessible. I believe was the way that she put it. Um, that needs to be the sort of new rhetoric around this. That like, no, it's not about rare. Um, it's about access. But which which is to say, it's not going to be rare, and we know it's not going to be rare because we are going to be making our state 
a shelter for this. So we're no longer hiding. Uh, I mean, like, you know, a thing to think about here with Biden, like why, why are people like us so critical of him? Uh, because he was scared to say the word abortion until like the last month here. Like he, whenever he was talking about it, he'd be like, oh, oh, a woman's right to choose Jack, that sort of thing. Wasn't even really able to put a fine point on it. Um, but yes, uh, times have changed. Um, I accept, you know, I accept that losing occurred in 2016 um, and that the the loss was like real. And so in my head, I have recalibrated of what I would want out of a primary challenge and what I even think is possible. I, I want to make this clear more than anything. Um, procuring the nomination would be dope. But at the end of the day, it's much more important to me beyond just procuring the nomination that those of us who think that this is worth fighting for actually put a flag down on the ground and say, no, it was unacceptable on the weekend of the 24th that Joe Biden gave one speech saying, please don't get too mad about this peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. And then went and went back to his house, especially to contrast to Donald Trump. I'm not saying that Trump's conduct on January 6th was admirable, but boy, is it a stark contrast. And there's a Goldilocks spot between Joe Biden, uh, Mr. Ice and Donald Trump, Mr. Fire here. Uh, Joe Biden is not leading. Um, and, you know, why did O'Rourke flame out? Or why is he flaming out? Because, like, Greg Abbott's a horrible candidate. A horrible politician. Has been horrible for the state. Ken Paxson, as I talked about earlier, is horrible. And O'Rourke's not going scorched earth on these guys. And making the point of distinction clear. And... At the end of it, too, and I think this is important, and, and again, you know, yeah, I stand Warren. There's reasons why I stand Warren. Warren's whole, I got a plan for that thing. Uh, it would have felt good during COVID to have, I got a plan for that. And right now, um, when people are, why are people feeling so adrift watching Harris and Biden? It's because it doesn't feel like they have a plan for that, right? And Warren, on the other hand, Warren, on the other hand, she tweets out on the 27th here, we must restore our democracy so that a radical minority can no longer drown out the will of the people. Expand the Supreme Court to rebalance it. End the filibuster to codify Roe. Fix the electoral college so that popular vote losers like Trump can't stack the courts again. She is talking about the whole road that we got here. And... Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are very sad about the destination we've arrived at. And my problem with the moderates in the party, uh, like O'Rourke, is that they are often very sad about the situation, the same situation that I'm sad about, but they're not pissed about the road. Or, or to use Warren's own words, furious. They're always sad. They're never furious. Always sad, never furious. Um... Yes, we, we don't want people to be too angry. People don't like an angry woman. Well, you know what? Those people are sexist. Um, and, and fury is actually w what is called for some degree of anger. Or like, let's not quibble over words. Uh, or if we're going to quibble over words, let's make sure we do it with the Democrats too. That this sad thing basically says <coughs> the beatings are going to keep continue um, or keep continuing. It, it, it is 
many of our parents saying things like cooler heads prevail or, well, I still have hope and that sort of thing. And all of us knowing that like we actually need more than, well, kumbaya, we need actual blood and teeth. Um, and, and we need rhetoric, like Warren says, quote, let me state a basic fact, a person's control over of and or over if and when to have a child leads to healthy adults, healthy children and healthy families. The extremists who successfully fought to overturn Roe do not care about health. They care about control, not our fundamental rights. And we need to be talking about it in those starker terms. It's not that there are reasonable Republicans. And this is the problem with Joe Biden's rhetoric around reasonable Republicans. This is a problem that I have with normalizing Lynn Cheney. You go and you go, ah, she's so great. Love her. And then what's she going to say about Roe? Now that you just finished glad handing her for the last two and a half months on everything else that matters, what's she going to do? Uh, is she going to help us out? How about Mitt Romney? He going to help us out? Uh, so then, like, at least he's not on the committee. I get that. But, like, you know, Kinzinger, uh, Liz Cheney, especially Liz Cheney, when you make her, like, the, the main interlocutor or everything like that, you are just rehabbing a Cheney so that they can stab us in the back with the credibility that all these like Bidenist Dem libs will be like, oh my God, I can't believe she'd say that. I, I thought I liked her. Uh, I thought she was okay. I, th that dope the other day I read, it was like, oh, you could be the first woman president. You wouldn't want that. She's horrible. Uh, she would put more people like Amy Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court in a heartbeat. She'd vote for all three of them that got put on by Trump. Like, like uh, it's nuts as potatoes. Like, like there's just no, there's no reason behind it whatsoever. Uh, I'm actually managing to do most of my slate in answering this mailbag. So I think like I actually, it's going to be like mailbag. Plus we've basically gotten through the slate here. So we got one last one here. Uh, I appreciate the discussion on, 40 years to change uh, the court back um, with no simple solution but work. But that insinuates that the Dems actually want the change. They are paid by the same sources that the G GOP are. I can't pass a bill on my own. And I trust none of my voting options. So one might wonder, am I not exactly where they want me to be? Apathetic. And I, I mean, I think that like the last sentence there is, is really important. Yes, what they want is for you to be apathetic. Um, if you look at Joe Biden's statement, um, that was not the statement of a guy who gave a shit on Saturday or on Friday. That was the statement of a guy who knew that something for like all of his friends and everything was really bad and he needed to say something about it, but he didn't actually feel that bad about it himself. I'll give you an example from my own life, uh, right? Hey, who, who doesn't love a good no example? Um, so... You, you all might know this, or I, mean, I don't think I've ever talked about this. I was dating a girl several years ago, and that girl slept with a guy who was ostensibly my friend. I'm going to like spare the details of this, right? And obviously that led to the end of the relationship and the falling out with that friend, and they kept doing it, and like it was hurtful and real bad and everything. Well, I, see, I don't even want to say like, you know, I was about to say, well, karma's a real bitch, but like, I mean, it is, um, that person was an anti-vaxxer and during COVID, um, they continued to go out and keep gigging and 
um, they didn't get the vaccine and um, you can't just go out and work in front of, you know, hundreds of people on a weekend basis when people are running around with the vaccine and this is real virulent and um, that person passed. If I would never do this because I know better, but if I was at an event for this person or I was around their friends, um, I would not feel the same way as all my friends. I would sound a lot like Joe Biden did, where I'd be like, this is a very sad event. It's a very sad day. Very sad for the families. Very sad for the families. Um, but, but like, and, and I might even be there. Like, I, I like legitimately, like, I'm not like, like some like heartless guy. Like the guy had a mom and dad, of course, like they love him. But like, also, also let's be real here. Wasn't like the guy was coming around to apologize to me or anything like that. Right. Um, Joe Biden uh, right, you're probably going, well, this sounds really harsh, Chris. You sound pretty harsh here. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, really think about what, what you would do there. Uh, and two, well, maybe this is unfair to Joe Biden. Is it? Joe Biden was sworn into the Senate just 17 days before the Supreme Court issued its 1973 ruling on Roe v. Wade. In an interview with the Washingtonian, Washingtonian, pardon me, back in 1974, he said, I don't like the Supreme Court decision on abortion. I think it went too far. I don't think that a woman has the sole right to say what should happen to her body. Let me talk, turn to abortion. The ban on partial birth abortions or late-term abortions you supported that ban. I did, and I do. You believe that Roe v. Wade was not correctly decided, and that you also believe that a right of abortion uh, was not secured by the Constitution. Do you believe that life begins at conception? I am prepared to accept my church's view. I think it's a tough one. I have to accept that on faith. That is a tough, tough decision for me. Um, but there is a point relatively soon where viability it's clear to me when there's viability meaning the ability to survive outside the womb that i don't have any doubt now he's coming under fire from other democrats amid revelations he still supports a controversial abortion law the hyde amendment which bans using federal funds for abortion services except in cases of rape incest or to save the life of the mother critics say the law prevents low-income women from access to abortion the hyde amendment is wrong uh, i think that we have a nation where all these insidious things are being done to undermine women's reproductive rights in this country this isn't about the politics this is about what's right the Hyde Amendment should not be American law. Biden's views on abortion have evolved. A devout Catholic, he repeatedly voted against exemptions for victims of rape and incest during his early days in the Senate. But he also totally gave up the ghost when his point of concern was not what we are doing for the women in that speech. I, I, I'm not going to go and do the lit crit and actually analyze the uh, the lines here. But his point of concern, his main focus was the protesters and peaceful but it's all about the protesters let me close with two points first i call on everyone no matter how deeply they care about this decision to keep all protests peaceful 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 no intimidation violence is never acceptable threats and and intimidation are not speech we must stand against violence in any form regardless of your rationale. Second, I know so many of us are frustrated and disillusioned that the court has taken something away that's so fundamental. My administration will use all of its appropriate lawful powers, but Congress must act. 
that with your vote, you can act. You can have the final word. But it's all about the protesters. They're the real problem here. And the real reason he even spoke at all on Friday, rather than just do his little statement that he did on WhiteHouse.com, where they announced two measures, two little small piecemeal measures, and nothing else. Um, the real reason that he came out and spoke is that he was worried that the protests might kind of go to January 6th levels. That's all it was. That's all it was. It's the only reason he even said anything at all. Only reason. Uh, it, it, pretty clear to me. Um, he doesn't care about this. It just doesn't animate him. Um, and, you know, that, that, that's where you get him. Uh, that, that, that's what you're able to get him. Um, but what he wants for you, uh, the writer here, and, and, you know, for other people who, who are feeling apathetic right now, is he wants you to feel apathetic. He wants you to be peaceful. Be upset, but in a way that doesn't disrupt society, um, doesn't disrupt their elections. They would like you to go and vote harder. Um, for them, um, which means don't worry about the primaries. We got that. Go and vote in the general elections. You're going to be scared of the Republicans. Go and vote for them. You should still do that, by the way. Um, but the uh, that's not coming from them. That's coming from me. Um, but what they what they're really worried about is primaries. They have been balls scared of another Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez Joe Crowley moment for a very long time. Who are they scared of? Who's Chuck Todd scared of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Look at the way he conducts interviews with her. Um, who are the Republicans scared of? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She absolutely preoccupies them, and she has preoccupied them from the beginning of time. Um, what they are worried about are elected rock-ribbed progressives. It's the thing that legitimately scares them. In the same way that like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert actually legitimately alarm us, um, especially like the idea of like a speaker Matt Gates, God help us, or a speaker Marjorie Taylor Greene, God help us again. Um, this actually scares us because they're rock-ribbed. Um, what actually puts the fear into the elected class is us actually threatening to take over their party. And it's not impossible. Will they obstruct it? Of course. That also happened in the past. I mean, like, let us not suppose that in the 1800s, the 1800s of all things, that, like, elections were, like, free, fair, and the uh, young upstart parties were not facing structural disadvantages put in place by the uh, entrenched class of political species there, right? Like, of course it happened like that. Of course it did. Um, but they, the entrenched class stays entrenched by the upstarts deciding this isn't worth it i'm just gonna go and live my life i'm like not gonna do anything it's not worth it to get involved in electoralism and anything or anything um and, and like let's go a little bit further on this um i mean on a state level i talked about it earlier uh depending on what state you're in it's extremely important right like texas potentially being a battleground state um or a blue state in a general election is nearly a one-shot KO to ensure that we have a veto pen in the White House so that this 26 states uh, prohibition situation does not spiral into a 50 states prohibition situation. And if we can make Texas blue, we can basically make the math for Republicans to ever pass that national amendment not viable. That also means that we control who gets nominated to the Supreme Court. Sam Alito could live for a long time. Sam Alito cannot live forever. Clarence Thomas, 
didn't not going to say that first sentence. Clarence Thomas cannot live forever. When the day comes, we need a blue in the White House. Um, same thing with uh, like it's the Speaker of the House thing, uh, AOC challenging Nancy Pelosi. When the day comes that we can actually do stuff um, and pass bills, including a women's like you know national defense bill, uh, you know doing something that not just codifies Roe, but also passes in a number of great measures across these states. Who's going to put that in there? The Speaker of the House. Who is going to control leadership? Speaker of the House. Speaker of the House can set a lot of the contours, including committee chairships. Having Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in that place is going to be really important when that day arrives. It does us no good if three Supreme Court justices get abducted by aliens who are well-intentioned and, and want to help America out if the Republicans control Congress or we still have squish libs in leadership. So, yes, uh, your opinion towards the squish libs, it should be something engaging towards apathy. Um, they're better than the R's, but they are simply a warm body until we can come back around and knock them out in the primaries. Um, what left justice looks like for the fecklessness of the Democrats, um, which, again, considering the spectrum of the audience here, we all agree they're being feckless right now. But what left justice looks like is not letting the Republicans win. What left justice looks like in this case is going to be punishing these squish Democrats, replacing them, and then showing that we can go and fucking win the elections that they can't win, and then we can govern it in a way that they can't. Um, so, yeah, like, don't get apathetic. I can't stress that enough. Um, it matters. Uh, governorships matter. Um, look, O'Rourke's not great, but when it comes time to, you know, we have another school shooting in Texas. We will. Um, when we do, you don't want to have a governor who's just going to take the side of the cops right out the gate. Will O'Rourke? Maybe. Um, I mean, he might, might end up kind of doing some cover for him. So would McConaughey, perhaps. This is why I'm just not in favor of these guys. It's as much as I don't support their moderate stances, like, like, you know, like that one guy being wrong about BDS, for example, um, like let's boycott, divest and sanction, uh, people don't get your mind out of the gutter. Um, like it's beyond just being wrong about that. Um, you know, you worry that dispositionally they're not going to be there on that. It's still better to have O'Rourke in the governor's chair than to have Greg Abbott in the governor's chair. Um, it's still better to have O'Rourke as a senator, even if you don't love him, than it is to have Ted Cruz as a senator. All these things matter. Be, you know, if we could somehow replace Ken Paxton, um, it matters. E you know, even even if these uh, like all the other office holders were the same, like like you know, if the uh, this is like kind of impossible in Texas, but like if the AG was blue, um, that actually would do something to disrupt the Republican machine in the state. So, like, actually, all these elections matter. And they always have. It's just now we need to start thinking about what our theory of change looks like. What do we want the tone of our candidates to be like? Um, and, you know, our tone within policing conduct inside of the party and our tone after we police, after the time for policing conduct inside the party has closed. And it's now time for fighting the, the outside opposition who are the real instruments of torment in our life. I saw a, a, a thread earlier today um, from someone who's very much an ally of ours, who, who is, you know, uh, someone who probably has done far more when it comes to abortion protecting than me. Um, and, and the entire thread was bashing liberal fecklessness for the last, you know, 25, 30 years, you know, tweeting at Joe Biden won't do anything. They're not lifting a finger. All shit that I agree with. Absolutely. 
but at the end of the day, it's not the liberals who are making your life miserable. Uh, the liberal, you know, the, there is another analogy here uh, that, that has been getting some traction of, uh, what was it? My roommate said, uh, my roommate, of course, uh, my roommate said that the Republicans are the school shooter and the Democrats are the Uvalde cops. Um, which is to say, I, I gotta be honest, both are bad, but one is pulling the trigger and shooting kids. And yes, the other ones are pulling a Pontius Pilate routine on the outside here, but like Pontius Pilate, well, bad, uh, for, for you Bible scholars, like I am, but you know, I would say I'm a Bible enthusiast, all one word, all one word, Bible enthusiast. Um, you know, and for, for Bible enthusiasts as, as myself, I, I love the Bible. Uh, you, you know, the story of Pilate and like, yeah, he's not a good guy, but he's also like not the guy driving nails into Jesus's hands and then shoving a spear into his side. And there's a difference in agency here. Uh, so, you know, like, yeah, like damage mitigation does actually matter here. And, and at the end of the day, we are going to one need to now forever be on guard uh, about this national abortion ban, 50 state ban um, that will forever dangle. And we have to now play defense until we can flip the court back to a place where we can start winning some of these cases. Uh, I, I mean, I think the last part of the offensive step here too is um, beyond electoralism, um, and, and beyond street protesting, I, I, I propose a third course of action, legalism. Uh, this is a term I haven't heard before, so I'm just going to throw it out there. But it's like what the Republicans have been doing, right? They just pushed up through the court system. So now how do you do that in a conservative court system? Um, you start using the pipeline of religious liberty, and the court continues to make expansionist interpretations about what religious liberty is. Um, just this week, we saw a ruling on school prayer where a football coach who was asked merely to stop praying at the 50 yard line because he was being perceived as a member of like the state working for the local schools here um, and, and endorsing religion and doing a tacit endorsement of religion and thus violating the establishment clause. Uh, now we see like the court take an ever expansionist view on this. I think really the only way to secure rights in the medium term, absent being able to overturn the court and absent being able to actually pass laws that will s sustain uh, legal muster, is that we start making challenges, uh, albeit absurd ones. Uh, again, you know, you could say they're disingenuous challenges, but like I, I'll put it this way. I want them to be no more silly than what the Republicans are going to do. Yeah, let us just set the bar there. We'll, we'll do no more silly than what the Republicans are going to do. But like we start establishing religions. Um, you know, I, I've already seen some chatter among Jewish people talking about maybe this being a violation of their body. I, I worry a little bit that like then it would be exclusively to Jewish people. Um, how about establishing some sort of essentially non-denominational, barely religious church that doesn't even necessarily believe in a God? Because here's the fun thing about a church. It does not legally say you actually have to believe a God in a God inside of it. Oh, it's implicit, um, but it doesn't actually have to be that way. Um, establish a church and start getting our rights back through the means of this non-denominational church. Um, essentially, if they're going to use religious liberty and force our society to be contoured through religious liberty um, as the guiding doctrine here, there needs to be some sort of religion of liberalism. In fact, I mean, 
If you listen to conservatives already, uh, many of our worst enemies contend that things like transgenderism and critical race theory and all these sorts of things are just essentially liberal ideologies, that these are all just like the liberal religion being pushed on the kids. Let's just embrace it. Let's just go right at it. Um, you know, and, and like, yeah, that'll come with some walls. But like if they put, try to put the walls in, then we can try to get the privileges. And like, don't get me wrong. The walls will be somewhat inconvenient. Can't talk about liberalism in the classroom too much or whatever. Can't talk about those things. But guys, tax-free shelters. Yeah, you know, if we start establishing churches. What if your church is your house? What if, what if it's every every house is, is, is a church in our religion here? Um, you know, I, I think that what needs to happen, rather than getting apathetic, is we need to start tossing out ideas. Um, and we need to start organizing people on the electoral front on the streets front yes we need to take it to the streets and then also on the legal front we need our college educated friends um our legal educated friends to take some of the battles to the courts here and i mean here's the thing about our enemies at the supreme court and i think one of the things that's the most maddening but in a way is also somewhat heartening here these arguments are not that smart, right? Like you read like Alito's opinion on Roe versus Wade. It was not particularly well argued. Let them again. I no, I'm I'm got I can't even say I I, I you know I gotta keep avoiding violent stuff here. Let them string themselves up with their own words if they keep talking. Um, you can't do this forever, but like they're going to say enough stuff on this religious liberty stuff, especially like when they let Thomas or Alito take an, an opinion and be the guy who actually writes it, um, that you can start throwing their words back in their face eventually, that they've now expanded out religious liberty far enough that you can start saying that smoking, smoking weed is legal in our religion, um, that having Fridays off is legal in our religion, uh, four day work week is like part of our religion um let them keep expanding religious liberty out and then start fighting it and either we start fighting them either they have to then do one of two things right they have to start limiting religious liberty in ways that will make them dosy don't again our opponents are not actually that smart look at their arguments they're not very good uh not just that we disagree with them that like they're not well constructed that like read alito's citations of like plessy versus ferguson and then all those bizarre union arguments or whatever like like this is not a great argument that, that they have come up with here. They don't have those. They'll, they'll hit a wall here. Will they yield? No. At that point, they'll be reduced to absurdity. And, like, it'll make the case stronger to expand the courts. And hopefully, at that point, with the legal challenges and actually trying to get the House and having a speaker who's actually willing to speak truth to the power of the president, imagine that world. Now the table is set to where we can do something about this on a national level. In the interim, those of us, uh, you know, like in my age range here, we need to do what is right for our families, uh, our wives, our daughters, and um, and ourselves, by the way. Like, it's, you know, like, you shouldn't just be forced to have a kid because of the state. Like, if your partner would want to get an abortion but she can't and so like you two are both forced to have a kid you're you're suffering under that too so it's for all of us 
Um, those of us who need to make these moves, we need to make these moves. You shouldn't feel ashamed of it at all. You need to do what's right for yourself. Um, in the longer term, if you do feel somewhat guilty about that or whatever, there is a roadmap here. There's a three-pronged roadmap. We need all three prongs. Like, this is a three-legged stool. It will not stand up on two legs. Um, and that's been the problem here, right? It's like, vote harder or let's take it to the streets. Um, not enough. Not, neither one's going to be enough. I, I would argue we've been vote, voting harder the wrong way, and I'd argue we've been taking it to the streets the wrong way, and I've, I definitely would argue that we have not been engaging on the legal side in the right way here. Um, all that stuff's going to matter. And, and you know, that's, having, having the attorney generals, uh, the district attorneys, having the House um, and the Senate so that you can control who's getting nominated to the federal bench, um, all that stuff matters. Um, so like there's interplay because having having people on the federal bench makes the legalism strategy better. It uh, makes it easier for us to send stuff up to that Supreme Court so that they keep writing copy on it. Um, we have to worry about cert. Uh, you only need four for cert, for, fortunately. Um, and so like like I mean, here's the other thing we got to hang on because we need to replace Thomas because we need four. Four is important because four will give us cert. Cert matters. Because if we don't have cert, stuff doesn't even go to the court, the lower ruling stance. Now, that might be good in some cases, and you might be able to force their hand with liberal courts. But, you, you I mean, we, we need like Kagan and Sotomayor and Kentucky uh, oh, Brown Jackson will actually probably be dope on this. We need them to sort of be kind of like, you know, laying the game, playing laying the game here. Uh, and then we need to get the fourth horseman uh, on there so that we have cert so that we can bring stuff onto the court to force their hand. Um, then we got to let our ladies work. Uh, maybe we need four horsewomen. Uh, we, we need the four horsewomen on the court so that they can lead the charge. Um, yeah, it'll be four or five. They're not going to win much. Um, you're going to have to try to flip Roberts and all that. I mean, it's going to suck. Like, But at least you got a fighting chance. You got four or five. You're fighting for Roberts. Um, maybe Roberts will realize that like, his head might be on a pike here. Um, you know, metaphorically speaking, of course, um, if he keeps doing crazy things. Um, so like, like it all matters. Um, I get that it's dark right now. Uh, and I mean, look, I, I've talked to you about primarying Joe Biden during the course of this episode. So like, like let's, I think, God, I should hope that I have the credibility of not being a dem apologist here. Um, but I, I can't stress this enough. Uh, to all of you who are feeling a sense of apathy, who think that it's time to shut out, especially like the younger part of the audience. Um, you know, glad, glad that the gray hairs are not showing enough. So I still kind of fit in with y'all. Um, but, uh, guys, we can't shut down right now. Um, it's as bad as this is, it is, it's going to take a while. It's not going to be instant. It's reversible though. Um, not Roe versus Wade, not immediately, but actually, Faster than you might imagine. Thomas goes, we get someone on the court, um, we start constructing challenges that put Roberts into a real bind. Um, things are possible. We need five votes. If we have four rock ribbed libs and we can twist Roberts, it matters. It matters. The 6 3 thing is not forever. This, even this current paradigm, it's not forever. It might be for the next 10 to 15 years. And, and those of you who need to plan accordingly need to plan accordingly for that. Um, but don't drop out. 
Fight for the blue states. If you're in a blue state, fight for your oasis. Um, this is actually a fantastic opportunity while the while the polarization is high and the energy is high for us to pass real great protections in these blue states. It is an opportunity for us to start getting challengers ready. Um, it's an opportunity for us to start building a national progressive base of politicians that we want um, and really flank the feckless Dems so that when it is time, uh, and we have an open primary and we have a chance to do something. We can do something. Uh, so I hope this doesn't sound like apologizing for them. Uh, God, uh, Kamala Harris. Can we just end? We'll end on this. Like, like, you, you know who you know who the nominee can't be. You know, the nominee can't be. It can't be this goofus. It can't be. The, I'm sorry, people. It can't be this goofus sitting here. She's got uh, like, let's talk about this photo. You got one woman walking out because Kamala Harris has just spoken to her and clearly she's very sad, right? Like she's walking out. You probably didn't notice it the first time you saw the picture. I, I have studied this picture. You got Harris. She's so distraught about this that all she can do after having this meeting and getting informed. No, it's a woman who just talked. She was just talking to not a man, a woman. Um, now she's watching the news. She's very sad. And she goes, I know there are all these women out there who feel afraid. To those of you who feel alone and scared, I want you to know the president and I are fighting for you and your rights. We are in this together. She did this. She had a photographer. I mean, obviously, she didn't take this photo herself. She's got her hands crossed. She's not using a selfie stick. So she had her photographer take this photo. Her team, her staff tweeted this shit out. Um, and then she goes on to uh, CNN this weekend and, 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 and clowns herself. Um, like let, let us, let us talk briefly about the, the clownage of Kamala Harris here. Um, first she gets asked about the filibuster. Um, let's talk about the filibuster, shall we Kamala? Significance of but that. As the vice president, as the president of yeah. the Senate, do you have a position on, I know you don't have a vote on it, but do you have a position on whether the filibuster should be eliminated? I think us? the president has spoken on that issue and well, he the, said oh. and more, he kind of left the door open. Is this where he was leaving the door open to? I think that he has been clear about where we stand on, on this issue of reproductive health and what the president and our administration have within our toolkit to do. And so, so far, that's what we've been pursuing. There will be women who have babies who uh, don't have the means to support the babies. Will the federal government act at all to increase support there? I'm so glad you raised that point, because I'm going to say this. And here is the abject, obvious hypocrisy. Those people who say that they do not want to allow a woman to choose to make the decision with her priest, with her rabbi, with her pastor, that instead the government is going to interfere and make the decision for her. Those same people are the ones who voted against the extension of the child tax credit. The same ones who voted against a tax cut for families to pay for childcare. The same ones who are voting against paid family leave. The same ones who vote against putting resources into public schools. I just, I said I was doing work on maternal mortality. We're pushing to say that, for example, Medicaid should be extended for postpartum care from two months to 12 months. Can, These are the same people who reject the notion of expansion of Medicaid. Can the president do any of what you just talked about 
with his pen, without Congress. Oh, listen, we have, as a democracy, invested in Congress an incredible amount of power. I mean, you just get these mealy-mouthed answers. Um, she goes on and gets asked about federal land. Will the government... Again, this would be another good example of like why electoralism would matter. Senator, here'd be a fan, here'd be a fantastic point. What if the government used federal land as a way of setting up clinics in all fifty states? That we have laws on the books uh, under the Chevron deference, which is in danger, um, and they're going to come for that. But we have laws in the books right now that say that and precedent that says that federal land is governed under federal jurisdiction, not subject necessarily to state laws. What if the federal government opened up women's clinics on federal land, thus ensuring that women could get access to medical care within several hundred miles so that this would not be a situation where privileged people could fly um, if they can afford to fly. And that's like, I mean, yeah, one has to be fairly privileged to be able to afford to fly these days. Um, supposing you could fly, um, you, th that is, those are the people who, who are currently benefiting. This would ensure that now, in all 50 states, there's at least some place in the state that you can go to to get access to this. Uh, that is outside of the tender mercies of these right-wing, uh, metaphysically-inspired Republican politicians. Kamala Harris has said that they wouldn't support that either. In around states that ban abortion. Every statement that the Attorney General has made. Can the administration expand abortion access or abortion services on federal land, meaning provide the access on federal land that might be in and around states that ban abortion? I think that what is most important right now is that we ensure that the restrictions that the states are trying to put up um, that would prohibit a woman from exercising what we still maintain is her right that we do everything we can to empower women to not only seek but to receive the care where it is available. Is federal land uh, one of those options? I mean, it's not right now what we are discussing, but I will say that when I think about what is happening in terms of the states, we have to also recognize, Dana, that we are 130-odd days away from an election, which is going to include Senate races, right? P part of the issue here is that the court has acted, now Congress needs to act. But we, if you count the votes, don't appear to have the votes in the Senate. Well, there's an election happening in 130 odd days. I'm taking, for example, thinking of, of a Senate race in Georgia or North Carolina. There's a the Senate race coming up just in a couple weeks in Colorado. And we need to change the balance and have pro-choice legislators who have the power to make decisions about whether this constitutional right will be in law, right? We say codified, mm -hmm. put it in law so that there will be no ambiguity about it. Essentially, like, it's all about Congress. It's about holding Congress accountable. And if we don't, if we get them enough votes, it will be about blaming the two defectors every time when Joe Manchin defects on us. And like now the stakes, oh, by the way, the stakes of Joe Manchin's defection have just gotten even higher and the likelihood of his defection and the reasons why the Republicans would want to make him defect have only gotten higher now. Um, ditto with Kirsten Cinema. Um, like so like 
it, either we will get them just enough votes so that Mansion and Cinema can sabotage us again, uh, and then we have to debate about the filibuster because we're not going to get sixty votes. I think we all know that. And more importantly, we're not going to get sixty-five votes, which is what we'd actually need in order to have a filibuster-proof majority. And like, if you have sixty-five votes, like, why aren't you just passing everything at that point, right? Like, like, what what is the point of anything? Um, no, like, like this is. This is essentially a scenario where, as I said earlier, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have played green eggs and ham. They will not do this. They will not do that. They will not do this. They will not do that. They will not do this. They will not do that. Um, anytime anything is proposed, they just go, oh, that would never work. Oh, that would never work. Oh, I couldn't do that. Oh, that would never work. Um, they're your friend who just doesn't want to go out on Saturday night. They're, 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 they're going to come out with a thousand reasons why they don't want to hang out with you on Saturday night. But the reality is, is they just don't want to go out. Um, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden don't want to fight on this. They are sad. Perhaps they're even really sad. And maybe they even have a member of their family who's really affected by this. And they're sad for them. Uh, maybe a friend. Maybe. Sure. Uh, but they're, they're not angry. It doesn't make them mad. They would never actually look at the stuff that they own in their house and start putting it up for sale to move to another state because they're that worried about the state of affairs. Um, they wouldn't speak to their boss about getting more hours to have money to save for a move because they're scared, right? They got a nice house. I mean, after they leave that house, they'll go to another nice house and they can do it in any state they want because they got that freedom. Um, but we don't have that. And we're like increasingly in this society where... Um, certain people have a lot more freedom than others, and it has everything to do with money. Like, it has less to do with race. Uh, increasingly less to do with race. Race, of course, still matters. But uh, the, the divide here is clearly you either got the money to afford certain rights or you don't. And that's just not a tenable paradigm. And Kamala Harris and Joe Biden aren't up for the fight for that and a number of other things. Chesterfield Cat, what do you say about that? Say something. If you're going to keep interrupting the show, I, I want good content. Otherwise, I'm going to wrap up the show here. Yeah? Can I wrap up the show? I'm going to wrap up the show? All right, we're wrapping up the show. That's going to do it for this episode of Don't Worry About the Government. Um, Thank you. Obviously, oh, oh yeah. Now you're going to talk. Now you're gonna, hold it. Hold it till the end of the show. He's, he's rude. He's rude. I don't know where he... You're big now. I don't, I, like, I don't know where he gets that from. I don't know. The interrupting thing? Don't know where he gets that from. I... It, it, the whole thing's embarrassing. I, I it, it's, it makes me. I don't want it to be reflective of me as a father. That's all I'm saying, sir. Sir, please stifle yourself. So, if you want to support the show, go to Patreon.com/dwatg. You can find me on Twitter uh, at dwatg. Yes, they can find me on Twitter. Um, and you can, of course, always email me. Um, as I mentioned on previous shows, if you're interested in guitar lessons and you're a supporter of the show. Um, get at me. I will cut you a listener deal. Sir, sir, I'm going to hold you for a second because I'm trying to do the, the promos here. So, Chesterfield Cat, do you have anything to say about the, the state of affairs in the world here? No, no, he doesn't He doesn't want any part of it. He doesn't want any part of the radio. Smart boy. Yeah, now, 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 now he wants out. All right, so if you could, if you would, a bucket show is all I ask. Chesterfield Cat here costs a bajillion dollars. Um, he, he is loud. Um, sometimes he goes into my wallet and he literally just eats $20 bills. Why? Right. Why do you do that? No, okay. You, you're trying to say that's a lie. It's not a lie. Like people, I, I, I've lost literally 
$5,000 this year because Chesterfield Cat's eating it all out of my wallet. So if you could, if you would, please support the show over at patreon.com slash DWATG. A buck a show is all I ask. And at that rate, I hope to one day recover the loss of the food that Chesterfield has eaten out of my wallet. The food, of course, being money. I want to thank you guys all so much for listening to the show. Uh, don't worry about the government. It is a listener-supported podcast. Until the next one. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.